Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, I hope you're having a blessed Christmas. Um, I've been thinking a lot this Christmas about uh, how, how the Christmas story and actually the gospel story, the story uh, that's in our Bibles in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is, is spread out not only, you know, in, in church, but it's all through the culture, it's all through the world, it's across the globe, and it's even in our modern-day culture, when we're uh, told so often that we ought not to believe that story, uh, we ought to be, uh, that it's a, a easily discredited story, uh, that, uh, you know, you shouldn't say it in public increasingly, you shouldn't say it in public because somebody might be uncomfortable and so forth how often it shows up. And uh, the case in point is on Monday, uh, some of our family went to this, which is uh, uh, Handel's Messiah. We went to not the whole three and a half hour version. We went to the highlights of Handel's Messiah, because uh, at least I'm not smart enough for the whole three and a half hours. But, but we, uh, it was amazing. Uh, and it was at the First Baptist Church downtown, which it wasn't a church event. They just rented it. It was the, the Portland uh, Baroque orchestra with uh, singers from across the continent uh, and with a choir and in and, and this old, old round uh, sanctuary building with stained glass. It, was, it sort of transported you back. In fact, the orchestra played instruments from the period, like harpsichord and stuff like that, uh, from the period of when Handel first uh, rolled out his Messiah uh, in Dublin in 1742. And so, so and we're sitting there, we're listening to this, sort of going through some time travel, and suddenly it dawned on me, I said, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. All these words, every single lyric in that entire thing is just simply quoting scripture from the Bible. <laughs> and I go, I'm, I'm looking around going, this is Portland, and everybody's clapping, and everybody loves this. They seem to like the words, and 90% of them don't believe this story, Right? I mean, that, that seemed to be the way it is. And, and I'm not making fun of people who don't believe the story. I'm just saying it was just such a, a stark thing to me as, since I'd already kind of been thinking about how, you know, the, the, uh, the story of the gospel sort of envelops us all the time anyway, whether we realize it or admit it or not. Let me just read you some of the lyrics. Isaiah 9-2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They, they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath uh, the light shined. Or Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Or John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And then the famous one. These are all like air, you know, like this is in the air, I guess. I don't know why they call it that. Choruses. But then the famous chorus, the Hallelujah Chorus. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. But did you know the Hallelujah Chorus isn't just a chorus that somebody made up? It's from Revelation 19 and Revelation 11. That's exactly, that's precisely the words where it comes from. Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord, that is praise Yahweh, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We've, heard, we've learned that in Mark, if you've been here. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords. Hallelujah. So the question is, a story that's supposed to be so easily discredited, why are we still here? Why are thousands, hundreds of people across our city 
right now, this weekend, celebrating this story? Why are thousands of people uh, across the city, why are, are uh, millions of people across the globe, why have trillions of people over the history of the world celebrated this story on this weekend, on this week? How, how can that happen? I mean, really, whether you think of yourself as a secularist or a religious person, whether you think of yourself as a Christian, or you think of yourself as a nun, that is N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, as in I'm not affiliated with any religious orientation, or just think of yourself as a spiritual person, whatever it is, you kind of owe it to yourself to look into this stuff. Because the fact is, is just saying that the supernatural never happens and doesn't happen, that's not a good answer. It's not. It doesn't prove anything. And, and so today I want to ask you to sort of um, share with me in what we'll call thinking Christmas. <laughs> Pondering Christmas. Warm, cozy Christmas is Tuesday night. You should come. You should bring all your friends. And we're not going to go too deep and too far into this and, you know, get all academic about it. I'm just saying... Just like Mary pondered all the things she saw, we'll see this in Luke chapter 2. We really owe it to ourselves, and we owe it to God. We owe it to Christ to at least consider and ponder the facts, and why should we believe this story? So I'd like to just start off by kind of bringing us all onto the same page and, and, and let you know, if you haven't been here, we've been going through the book of Mark, which is interesting because the book of Mark uh, in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the second one in the New Testament, it is uh, the first gospel that was written, probably written from Rome, uh, probably written in the early to late. Uh, I kind of lean toward the early, like 64 AD. You see, Peter and Paul, Paul were, uh, you know, we believe, were executed around 64 by Nero in Rome. And is probably shortly thereafter, somebody tags Mark, hey, you got to write this down. Why? Because Christians were being misunderstood. There were all kinds of stories being made up about what they actually believed and what they were promoting and what they were doing. And, and so probably he was asked in, the, in that context, I think. In fact, uh, you know, the reason was is that he had been Peter's interpreter as Peter had traveled around and shared this story and shared the gospel. And, and so Mark is sitting there. Imagine yourself sitting there. What are you going to say? How are you going to write this? What are you going to do? Mark makes, makes a very powerful, like, uh, you know, lay the gauntlet down kind of statement right up front. And here it is. He says, the beginning of the good news, which is another word for gospel. Those two words is what gospel means. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, just that statement itself is like, that's a pretty big statement, right? If you're going to have a title of the book, if Mark has a title to his book, this would be it. But I think he's just kind of laying it out there and saying, by the way, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I intend to show you and prove. Not prove in the sense that we think of a test tube prove, but as we'll see as we go along, prove in the sense of, yeah, probably true. And, and so he lays it out there, and he does it with something very interesting. He does it, I want to show you with a word. There's a, there's a word that's sort of a code word here, and it's the very first word, beginning. The word, the word in, in um, uh, the Greek language is arche. Arche being the beginning, or, or uh, archaic. And in fact, yes, Mark is linking himself, his gospel, he's linking it to the book of Genesis, because we've seen that word beginning, right? First verse of the entire Bible, in the beginning God. Well, the Greek translation that Jesus would have, would have been around in Jesus' time, would have been around in, in Mark's time, the first word of the entire Bible is arche. So essentially what Mark is saying is, is yep, this is as big a deal as that. And you say, what? wait, what? 
This is as big a deal as the origins of the planet? And Mark's saying, yep. The gospel of Jesus Christ is as big historically as our origins and how we came to be here in the first place. All humanity, all that exists, all that you see, how that all started. I mean, think about this. I mean, we've got whole sciences, whole disciplines that have been dedicated for centuries, for years to discovering origins. We're not really any closer, other than the scripture, we're not any closer than we've been before, but, but we've worked it and we've worked it and we've worked it. And Mark is saying, this story I'm about to tell you is as big a deal as that. And not only that, does this word beginning mean that it's that significant of a story uh, historically, but all the gospel writers reference the beginning in some way, shape, or form. Luke says it this way. He says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the arche, from the beginning. John goes a little more cosmic. He says, in the beginning was the word. And he goes actually back to that creative moment, the creation of the world. And this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, Matthew says. He goes back to the beginning of time, human time, of human history, and lays it out how Jesus' genealogy fit all the way back to Abraham. So he, 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 a little later, Matthew says, this is the beginning of the, this is how Jesus was born. This is the beginning of the whole thing and so forth in, in chapter one of his book. So the beginning was a big deal. And the reason is, is because it meant something very specific. It meant something in code. In fact, Luke, did, I don't know if you knew this, but he wrote the book of Acts. In original days, the book of Luke in the New Testament and the book of Acts were the same book. And in the first chapter of the book of Luke, the disciples are sitting around in the other room, uh, all the followers of Jesus, not just the 12. Uh, in fact, there weren't 12 anymore. There were only 11. It was, uh, Judas was dead because we know what happened with him. And uh, so they felt like, you know, we, Jesus picked 12, so we need to pick somebody. But who, what's the criteria going to be? So Peter stands up and lays out the criteria. Here's what he says. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning, there's the word, from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So he's saying, it's got to be somebody who's been there from the beginning. Why? Because here's the code. The code of the word beginning means this is a definitive eyewitness of what happened from the beginning to the end. Because if the beginning and the end happen, then you can be pretty sure, if the claims are true for those two things, then you can be pretty sure that everything else in between, all the teaching of Jesus, everything it says about why he came and what the point is, you can pretty well lean into that because it's probably more, the, the probability is a greater probability than just about anything else you could imagine. Just like the creation of the world and here you and I sit, that kind of probability, that's how, big a de- that's how, how powerful this eyewitness is. So, I, we don't have time to go through all the evidences in the scriptures. I'd encourage you, I'm going to reference some books here as we go along, that, that some fairly new ones too, about how can you trust the gospel? That's our question today. How can you trust the gospel, specifically the story of the birth of Jesus and why he came? How do we know we can do that? This is, this is important for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves at on our spiritual journey in our lives. In fact, I'm praying that some barriers might be dropped for some people about what Jesus is saying, what God is saying through the Bible, what the scriptures actually say. 
some barriers, some, some, some importance to it might be elevated. I'm even crazy enough to, to pray that somebody here today might just decide, you know what, I want to step over into a relationship with Jesus today. But for all of us, I'm praying that we will all, if we haven't in the recent days or in, 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 a, in a long time, that we'll, we'll take a second look. Even those of us who've been believers for a long time, that we'll get our Bibles out, that we'll go get um, some books that you know, talk about, well, can we trust the Bible? I'm going to quote one today. Uh, and, and just really ponder, why is it I believe what I believe? Why do I believe this book, these scriptures? And the first, first thing you need to understand is what it means to prove anything. What is it we're looking for? Historians and, and people who try to understand what happened in the past, they are people who don't look for proof because you can't prove that, right? They look for uh, evidence because the trustworthiness of any historical account is judged by anybody, anything by evidence, not by proof. In fact, I will say this. You and I live this way every day. We live this way all the time. If you know who your parents were, your parents told you stories about how you were born, just like this birth narrative here. They tell you stories about how you're born. They tell you what city you were born in. They tell you what, what hospital it was. My mother told me it really was painful. Uh, and I think that pain continued throughout my youth. I don't know. But, um, but you know, there was this, this you know, specific stories about where it was and even how, in my case, even how hot it was that day. It was 105. Um, and, and, uh, but here's the question. How do you know that's true? What if they're just pulling your chain? You, you, you were there, but you don't remember it, right? I mean, what if this is the Truman Show? What if the bubble of Happy Valley is true? And you've never been outside Happy Valley. What if you've never been outside Portland, the bubble of Portland? How do you know it's out there? How do you know somebody didn't, didn't you know, how do you know aliens didn't come and just plop you down here? Well, you look at the evidence from the stories, right? The things you've been told, you, you kind of measure them up and, you know, you're consistent, you know. Um, you know, your dad says, that's your mom, and your mom says, no, it's not. I mean, you, you, you know there's a problem. I mean, you, you measure it up by how, what, what's been told you. And, you know, you've got, you've got DNA evidence, which isn't, by the way, is not absolute. A lot of courts don't even accept it, right? But it's good. You have stories, well, even better is, is the eyewitness accounts that are told to you and you kind of compare them. That's, that's actually what the Bible is. Did you know that? That's what it is. But there are some pieces in there. There's some evidence in there and we don't have time to go even through even a, a minute portion of them, but we're just going to do a couple of them, two, two or three of them, okay, today, of, of looking at, you know, what is the evidence in the biblical story about the gospel of Jesus as Mark lays it out there, the gospel, the story, the good news of Jesus. What is the evidence there that we ought to, it's trustworthy, that we can trust it with like our lives, for example, First, first little piece of evidence that, that even we use in our, in our daily lives is extraneous detail. Extraneous detail. There's a lot of extraneous detail. What's extraneous detail? Extraneous detail is detail in the story that doesn't need to be there unless it actually happened. Stories that, that, that makes it sound more like reporting rather than some fantastical story, right? I mean, we already know there's supernatural in this story, but... If these writers are trying to add to the supernatural nature of it and they're not grounding it on earth, that would be, that would be a problem. 
What about the extraneous detail? Well, one of the most famous extraneous details, believe it or not, maybe you didn't think about this because there's no reason for us 21st century people to think about this, is that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, that's an extraneous detail that you wouldn't put in there if you're trying to make a great, awesome story. Let me read for you how, how Matthew does it. He says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. So he specifically sets the time he specifically sets the city that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, why, this is why this is extraneous. You and I, in the 21st century, we love a good underdog story, you know? The, you know, your team was supposed to lose by five touchdowns. But they come back and they win high fives. The underdog wins, yeah! It's just better when you're an underdog and you win, isn't it? But then, if you're supposed to win? Well, in the first century, that was not true. They did not in the first century, in those days, in Jesus' day, even in Mark's day. And remember, Mark's trying to prove to the Romans that this is, you know, legit. In those days, they did not operate on the underdog principle. They operated on the principle of once a loser, always a loser. And Bethlehem was a loser. It was a tiny little one-horse shepherd town. It's where they farmed out the farming of the sheep. That's why there were shepherds out there. So they didn't have to dirty their hands with it around Jerusalem. It was, it was just a podunk little one-car town. And it was, it was a place that, you know, you would never say, hey, so-and-so was born here. And then somehow they were elevated to, to king of the world. There's no way you would put that in there unless it was legit. I mean, because you think about this again. Mark Luke specifically, those two, are writing to the Gentiles. They're writing to Romans. Because you can say, you know, well, the reason Bethlehem's in here, the reason why they make a fuss about it is because um, uh, it's prophesied. And that's true. Micah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's true. But, he, but here's the thing. The, the, uh, those people that they were writing to had no idea of the Jewish prophecies. They all they knew was from Luke's detail, all they would have known is that the reason that it showed that Jesus was born in Bethlehem is because his parents went to Bethlehem to pay their taxes. All they would say is, good, it's about time those Judeans paid some taxes. That's all they would know. To them, this little bit of extraneous detail wouldn't have been helpful at all unless it's trying to describe without twisting and bias as much as possible what actually happened. There's another little piece of evidence that, that we need to follow through that's all over the scriptures, that's all over the New Testament especially, and it's all over this story. And that is the, the nature of probability. Probability. You know, you can't, you probably noticed this, you can't go back and repeat your life, right? You can't repeat and observe. That's the only way to prove anything is if you can repeat and observe, repeat and observe. Reality, it says, that you have to follow the, the simplest explanation when you're looking at history. In, in science, you can, you know, some of science is trying to uh, stretch over into metaphysics and do sort of the, the repeat and observe in the past and all that, They're, you know, but good science is, is science that says, okay, we're going to do this experiment, we're going to repeat it, and we're going to observe. Okay, so there's sort of a... Uh, uh, a tactile nature to it. There's an empirical kind of, uh, of observation. But in history, you can't do that. What you do in terms of understanding the truth of something that has been told to you or something in the past or story is that when drawing conclusions about evidence, 
Probability takes precedence over possibility. Probability takes precedence over possibility. In other words, what's the most probable solution, even if I've decided that such and such is not possible? Because you know, that's a pre-decide. That's not, that's not really very good thing to stake your life on either, right? I mean, again, we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We, we have these, these um, uh, probabilities that we live by. I, every time uh, we come to Christmas, and maybe it's because it happened to me like three or four days after Christmas, uh, I'm reminded of a car accident I had where I hit about, I don't know how big she was, seemed like a thousand pound moose. It was up in the north, uh, about six hours north of the Canadian-U.S. border in a place called uh, Winfield, Alberta, Canada. And a dark, dark, dark place where I was going about 100 kilometers an hour in a 60-kilometer zone. And a big old honking moose with a giant rack comes up, a big bull moose, and whoa, I swerved. I was able to get around him with my uh, 1974 Fury 3. Thankfully, that's a solid car. And I thought, you know, I wonder if the cow is right behind him. And sure enough, she pops up. Bam, I got her. What a terrible thing. And she, she cracked the windshield, went over the top, foot through the back glass, and fell on the uh, pavement. And her, her, hand, her back was broken. And it was, just, it was very sad in that regard. But, you know, the thing is, is I'd had a moose tag. And I'd been hunting all fall. And I hadn't seen a moose. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's not why I, I didn't speed up. I tried to break But... But so, so she's laying there, and I'm flagging cars down, and somebody comes along who knows me and said, go to the town next door. You know, family's there. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll get them. And the brother-in-law came back with some of the friends, hunting friends, and put her out of her misery and so forth, got her off the road. I was just afraid somebody's going to launch right into the ditch going over the top of her. But, but so I, then finally the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer, and, and you, you police officers, you work on probabilities all the time. And, and he comes to me, and he starts laughing. He goes, man, you were cooking. I said, what? What do you mean? 60-kilometer zone, which is about, like, you know, 36, 40 miles an hour. Okay. He goes, no, you were going at least 100, maybe 110. And that's like 62, 65 miles an hour. Oh, you mean? He said, I can tell. And he shows me the skid marks and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you were going that fast. I said, okay. And, and he said, and i tell you another thing, man. You were lucky. I said, what are you talking about? I just ruined my car. He said, no, you were lucky. If you'd hit that moose just six inches to the left, you would have been in a world of hurt. I said, why? He says, because a guy 10 miles south of here did that uh, last week, hit the moose, but just over on the, uh, on the windshield, just over about six inches, the moose's rear end came in, pinned him to the headrest, and for two hours he had to sit there with that rear end in his face until we could cut him out. I said, you can tell all that? He said, yeah. Okay, then I'm really thankful. So I, all of that based on probabilities. Looking at the evidence and saying, you know, that doesn't fit, but this does fit. That's what we're doing when we, when we look at evidence, even in, in the New Testament. And, and one of those, one of those uh, little pieces of, of evidence that uh, is not very often thought of is what is called undesigned coincidences. 
undesigned coincidences. Coincidences, uh, these are coincidences that, you know, nobody would make up and that too many people are, you know, would have to make them up and, and cover too many bases without anybody leaking it out, right? Here's, here's what Peter Williams in a new book called Can We Trust the Gospels says. He says, in an undesigned coincidence, writers show agreement of a kind that is hard to imagine as deliberately contrived by either author to make the story look authentic. So you, you, it's, it's just hard to imagine they could contrive this to make it look authentic. The idea that several of the gospel writers might have done this independently is even less plausible. And here's the thing, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they agree on this story. They agree on all of this. In fact, let me give you one, again, something we don't think of an undesigned consequence because we've, or a coincidence, because we've heard the stories over and over and over again. We think it's just, oh, that's the story. No. Try to be, imagine what it was like for the first people to hear this story or the first people to see what was happening. Look, look at how Luke, for example, describes uh, what was going on in Bethlehem that night. Everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now here, let me just tell you what the uh, uh, undesigned coincidence is. It's a person. It's Mary. You say, no, she's his mom. That's right. Which, you know, if Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, it would pretty much require her biologically to be there. But that's not, that's not the thing. The thing is, is that she didn't have to go. They weren't even fully married yet. She did not have to go. Only Joseph had to go. And here's the other thing. It's about 125 miles, maybe 150 as the road goes. And it was through some of the most robber-infested territories you can imagine. And she's eight months pregnant. It's a hard job to go there from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem when you're not pregnant. And yet she's there. Why was she there? Well, maybe Joseph didn't want to leave her, you know, pregnant in town without being married. Because that's a problem. Yeah, that's a possibility. Maybe, maybe he um, wanted to, um, you know, make sure he was there for the birth of a baby. Yeah, that was all, that, all of that could be true. But the coincidence is that she was there. And that the facts on the ground are that she was, a, and there's all kinds of, of these kinds of coincidences through the New Testament story of the birth and the arrival and the, and, and the touching down on terra firma of the Son of God, as, as Mark says. There's all kinds of things like that. Which leads us to one final uh, little bit of... Um, sort of historic, or it's really documentary evidence. When, what about the documents? So that, that's some, some, you know, sort of forensic evidence, but what about the actual documents themselves? You know, the New Testament documents. Haven't they been changed? Haven't they been, you know, uh, you know, written hundreds of years later? And, you know, this business about the eyewitness that goes all the way back to the event itself, all of them claim that that's what they're writing. So how do we know that? How can we draw conclusions on that? Well, when drawing conclusions about historic documentary evidence, the same criteria should be applied evenly to all the documents that we have, regardless of what it is we're looking at. You shouldn't pre-decide that one kind of literature should be read this way and one kind should be read that way. You should, you should apply the same principles, you see? That, that, that's only reason 
That's only fairness, but even more to the point, it only makes sense. Uh, for example, let me, let me um, give this example. When you were in college, when you were in high school maybe, you had a history professor, right? And the history professor pulls this big old honking book off the shelf and opens it up, and he reads something like this. He says, Nero, the Caesar in 64 AD, burned his, uh, the city of Rome because he wanted people to like him. That's my interpretation of what your professor read. Uh, because uh, he, So he set fire to Rome, and then he blamed the Christians and the Jews. Small sects of people in the city of Rome that most people never even paid attention to until, until uh, Nero said, they're doing it to us. They're trying to kill us all by starting this fire. Now, here's the question. How does that history book, and how does your professor know that? The reason he knows that, the reason it's in your history book is one guy, one guy. His name is Tacitus. Tacitus was a, a, a Jewish historian, and he didn't write even around the time of Nero. He wrote decades later. He wrote um, a, a long time after th those events took place. You know, like toward 110 A.D. Those took place in 64 A.D. But he was commissioned by the Caesar at that time to write, you know, really good history of Rome, including especially good history about that Caesar, right? But Tacitus was, was a true historian. Tacitus was careful. He, he tries not to embellish things, although his bias and his, his beliefs are clear. There's no question about that. But here's the interesting thing. When we look at Tacitus, we got this one guy and you think, well, how much history did he write? Well, he wrote 18 volumes. The only problem is we've only got two of them left. We can only find two of them. We know he wrote 18 because other people say he did, but we don't know what they say. We've got two, two. And you know how many copies we have of those two? We have two ancient copies of those. You know how many copies we have of the New Testament? Ancient copies? Hundreds and thousands, depending on how far along you go. So here's the thing. Why is it that a book is considered discredited that has all of that evidence that doesn't change anything, that, you know, some of the mistakes that the copyists make and all that don't change anything, and yet there's one guy with two books and two copies, we believe him out of hand? That's a real question for people who really want to know, can I trust the information that's being told to me? And speaking of how to read the documentation, I want to just read for you that most famous of Jesus' birth stories in the book of Luke, chapter 2. I'm going to read through, and I just want you to consider and listen to this, okay? And you can look up on the screen, and, um, and I'm going to pause between verses and consider some of the evidence that's just in that one story alone, these 19 verses, Okay? Here, let's just do this because uh, you know, we kind of owe it to ourselves to consider this. Look at this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Luke is taking this story and he's not putting it on the planet Krypton somewhere. He's putting it in earth, in circumstances that we can identify with. Why? Because he's saying it actually happened here, on earth. You see, you get the feeling like this is more of a reporter than it is a comic book writer, right? 
I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the comic books. I love the Marvel series. Black Panther is awesome. But I am not going to base my life on those. I'm not going to lean into those stories and say, ah, that's what I'm believing in. Okay? But this is not, it's not Superman's story. It's not on planet Krypton. It's, it's here on earth. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to register with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So he gives a family history, and he doesn't hide the family history. He doesn't hide that these people were low, low, low on the social scale, which again, in those days, was nasty, nasty deal, but he expresses exactly what's going on and, and, and how it's happening, and that they came from Nazareth. Later on, it'll be said, can anything good come from Nazareth? I'm not sure, but can anything good come from Bethlehem? That's kind of the way people would talk about it. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So he tells us of many of the details that are unusual, but they're not unbelievable, right? I mean, they're unusual. It's unusual to stick your child in a feeding trough with animals around who are used to eating what's in there, right? I mean, that's, that's unusual, in this case, it's what happened because everything was full up. So they were in the, the cave or the stable out back. Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone on them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. <laughs> Like we said last week, that business about they were terrified, they sure were. It's a very polite way of saying that they were on the ground freaking out in many ways. The word here is they feared a great fear. Why do you put that in there? Well, because the unexpected terrified the people on the ground that were there. It wasn't like, oh, Nito, the Son of God is here. Not like that. It was, it was, no, my word, they did not expect this. Four, and then verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So the angels give specific evidence. You can go ahead and, and check it out. You can go see. Why would it do that? Because nobody expected a baby. Nobody. I mean, okay, the Messiah's coming. Even Hebrew people, right? The Messiah's coming. You know, and, and even though there's this prophecy about him being born and so forth and so on, nobody expected a baby, son of God to be a baby. And verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel and the multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord <clears throat> has made known to us. 
And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they were, saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And they all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Okay? The local jury, if you will, the people, people like you and me in the city were kind of celebrating and praising God. Why are you celebrating? Oh, Something great has happened. What is it? What is it? Well, some shepherds had a message about an angel about a savior. And so we're not sure. But did you see that flash over by the shepherd's field? Yeah. What was that? I don't know. Maybe a transformer blew up. Wait, we don't have transformers. You know, I mean, how do they, they, the jury, people like you and me were saying something big happened. And, and, and you know, this whole business of, um, you know, this, this, uh, this Savior being born to this mother and this, this dad who is soon to marry her and all that kind of stuff. Let's not get into chronological snobbery. Let's not be snobs. Let's not say, well, it's wonderful to be in a generation in the 21st century that is smarter than any generation before us. People in those days obviously believed that babies came from eating chocolate. No, they knew. They knew exactly why. And that's why this whole business kind of winds up with Mary saying in verse, or this Luke saying about Mary in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Why? Because she knew what to expect to some degree about the birth of a child. That's why they call it expecting. But so much unexpected was mixed in there. It's like, okay, I have got to carry this for a while. I've got to ponder this for a while. She still has some puzzles, which is okay. Which, you know what that says? That says that, you know what? You can be a Jesus follower, and I can be a Jesus follower, and still have some puzzles. I can go with the, 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 the probability over what I think should be and decide ahead of time is the possibility. You see, that's the thing. It's not an argument to say my mom never saw supernatural, my dad never saw supernatural, I've never seen supernatural, my mom's mom, my dad's dad, my friends, there's never been supernatural happening in our 21st century world, so supernatural doesn't happen. That's not a good argument. That doesn't make sense. That's illogical. That's unreasonable, because we just don't know. We've got this much to see. We have to go with what other people are telling us. We have to go with what other people are telling us about our own lives. You know, the, 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 the stunning thing is that I think the greatest evidence that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born in, in that place just like we were told. And then he lived and he taught and he did all the miracles and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. The greatest evidence, really, is sitting around you and me. It's the millions and millions and millions of changed lives. I mean, think about it. We're not supposed to believe this story. This story is supposed to be nothing. This is supposed to be no big deal. It's supposed to be, you know, forget about it. And yet, across the planet today, it's the fastest growing faith in the world. Across the planet, people's lives are being changed. In this room, people's lives are being changed. They have been this year. I, I had a conversation with my brother-in-law who's a, in missions work. And they were just in Thailand, he and his wife. 
He's telling me, Dwayne, you cannot believe the church in Thailand. It is booming, man. It's just, just sweeping through. I said, really? I said, isn't that a Buddhist country? He said, yeah, but it's just going looking crazy. And he says, the cool thing is they're acting toward each other and toward other non-believers like the church is supposed to act. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, you mean like the book of Acts? Exactly like the book of Acts. It's still happening. It's still that powerful. So the greatest evidence is the changed lives that are sitting right around you and your changed life and my changed life. That's the greatest evidence. And here's the thing. If it's true that the birth of Jesus was the birth of the Son of God, the way these writers write it out, if that's true, then it's very simple step the most probable answer, the simplest answer is that the rest of the New Testament documentation and information and the teaching of Jesus and all of that other stuff is also true, including why we're told Jesus came in the first place, as in when Gabriel came, the messenger angel, and told Joseph what he ought to do because he'd found out that the woman he was betrothed to was pregnant. Look what he says. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. The Lord saves or literally Yahweh saves. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what does that tell us? It tells us if we can trust this story, we can trust that. We can trust that Jesus came to forgive us and to save us from our sins. What are sins? Sins. You know what sins are. Everybody knows what sin is. We know we can't even keep our own promises, let alone what we do with God's right? And what we've said to God. I mean, we, we know that. We, we know that we need saving. We also know that we need somebody with us. And it would sure be great if there was somebody who could get us through all of this and help us and help us with our relationships and everything else. We, we know all that. So back to our first question, can we trust the New Testament documents? Can we trust this story? The answer, it seems to me, and I know we've only had a few moments to kind of go on this, and if you're not convinced, you owe it yourself to dig deeper, dig further, get your Bible out, get a, a book or a commentary to kind of go along with it and read through it and, and just dig a little deeper because the answer is a resounding yes. Every time I turn over a rock, I can tell you for the last 40 years, it's been one thing after another after another. One of those times came when I was in college. I, uh, I, I took Greek at Wheaton College from what I did not know at the time was one of the leading Greek scholars in America. His name is Dr. Jerry Hawthorne, and boy, was he a tough prof. But he was one of the most gracious and kind men I ever knew. He just smiled a lot when he was inflicting the homework on us. <laughs> and he, he had us buy this Greek Bible. This is my copy right here. Greek Bible. And at the bottom, there's all this little midrash stuff down there. There's like all these 
things, and we didn't know what that was. We found out halfway through class that that's a bunch of all the manuscript evidence for the, for the, the, the words that are in the Greek here, okay? So how do we know that those are the words that were originally written, in other words? And these are all the manuscripts, you know, hundreds, thousands of them, and there's numbers of how many they are and, and which one there are. There's the Byzantine one, and there's uh, Vaticanus and all this kind of different kinds of crazy names, okay? So he gives us this assignment. He says, guys and gals, I want you to be able to discover uh, on your own what the manuscript evidence is, is for the veracity of the text that's in your Bible that's sitting on your lap on Sunday morning. So here's the assignment. Here's the passage. I want you to tell me why we should believe that this is the correct translation and why we should believe that this is the correct, uh, you know, the, uh, the original Greek that was written in the first place because due to this manuscript evidence. So we worked and worked and worked and, and we put, turned in these papers and, and I was kind of surprised. I think I got an A. I got a good grade anyway. And uh, I got me to thinking. I said, oh, you know, he gave us something easy. And I was kind of being skeptical about my faith at that time. I said, you know, I think I'm going to I'm going to challenge him. So I, went into, I got into class early. It was an 8 o'clock class, so that was so hard in my college years. I uh, got in there early, and I said, hey, Dr. Hawthorne, I want another one of those because I want to dig in deeper. He says, oh, good. I'm glad. You know, maybe you'll get a PhD. No, not going to happen. Um, I said, but I just want to dig deeper. He said, I want you to give me the hard one. Give me the hardest one. And he said, I did. And I said, no, 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 I want you to give me the heart. I think he gave us Luke or something. And I said, I want you to give us like the one that, that could change theology and mess people up. The, you know, the one where they put one word for another that should have been this word and just screw everything up. He says, I did, I gave it to you. You, you did? Well, that was kind of, that seemed kind of easy. He said, well, that's what I'm telling you. You can trust the Bible that is in your lap. That's what they said. That's what they're claiming that's all the evidence you really need. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You see, that's the surety, the trustworthiness that we have. Decades later, the Apostle Paul is writing about the story of Jesus and his coming as Son of God, putting his foot on planet Earth and the proof in the resurrection and all of that. And he says this, he says, because of this, story, because you can trust this story, you know what that means? That means all your sacrifices, all your giving, all your, all your work for Jesus, it's not in vain. I hope that you have of seeing people you love that have passed on, not in vain. The reality of what you've based your life on, that God loves you and he came for you and he can forgive your sin, not in vain. The hope that one day you'll see him and that you'll live with him and that today, before you even get to that point, you can live with the joy of the Lord as your strength. All of that, your hope is not in vain. You see, that that's the reality of why these gospel writers wrote what they wrote. That's why they put it down when they put it down. And here's the thing. What I discovered in Dr. Hawthorne's class is that God has shepherded this book down to us all through the ages just so he could tell you and I it's not in vain. I 
have written this down. I have come to earth. I've carried the story along, not allowed it to be buried under history, not allowed it to be destroyed as people have said they think they can do every generation or two for 2,000 years. I brought it all the way down through the portals of history just to you to say, I want you to know me like I know you. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to come into my way of living that it was always the way you were meant to live in the first place. Because I can change everything and I can lift you up and I can give you truly eternal, as in quality of life, no matter what the circumstances are for you on planet Earth. That's what this means. That's the hope that you and I have been given that is not in vain. I'm going to call the band out here, and as they come out, would you pray with me? Just everybody bow their heads and hearts in prayer. And I'm going to not be the only one praying here today, hopefully. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if this is the prayer of your heart, if you're saying, you know what, I want to follow that Jesus, then this would be the time to do it. I mean, what amazing Christmas it would be for this sort of light to dawn, to use the biblical phrase, for this door to be opened in your heart. And you could just say something simple like this, or you say, God, that's what I want. Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming to earth for me, to be my savior, that's what your name means, and to be with me my entire life. I didn't realize it, I know I need to be saved from my sins. I receive that forgiveness, Lord Jesus, from you. I thank you that you've come and done that. I will admit that all my puzzles are not solved, but today I realize that even your own earthly mother's puzzles weren't solved right away. And so, Lord, I do know for certain that I want you in my life. Would you come into my life and make the rest of my life the the best of my life? And just say, it's in Jesus' name I pray this to you, Heavenly Father. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, I would just ask you, really, from the bottom of my heart, to either go to the Welcome Center and get some information there about where to go from here. We'd love to be your church home if, you're, if you don't have one. Um, We'd love to help in any way we can. And, and uh, if you prayed that prayer, just please tell somebody. It's, it's, it, you need the support and encouragement of other people. There's lots of people here that would honor your request to hear what you, your story. Lord Jesus, we do love you. We thank you for coming for us in such humble means, in such unexpected ways, and that you have shepherded down through history your story so that here we are two, two, two millennia later and we're still experiencing it, we're still feeling the depth of it, we're still feeling the power of it, just like Mark said. It's just as big a deal as the creation of the world, even bigger. It's a recreation of our lives and our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, and thank you for being here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.